Hello and welcome to the Michigan State University Wealth Management Association podcast. My name is Jared Ryan and I will be your host for today's episode. Joining us today for the first time is my friend, Jamie Hopkins. Jamie is the Director of Private Wealth Management for Bryn Mawr Trust, founder of the FinSurf Foundation and Hopkins Retirement Consulting, not to mention an amazing friend and family man. In this episode, we talk about Jamie's numerous achievements, the importance of maximizing your resources and your network, along with advice for the next generation of financial advisors. Hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the MSU WMA podcast. Today we have an, an amazing guest who's making his first appearance. He is a national sensation, spreading knowledge by stage and by cellular, the godfather of countless designations and organizations, not to mention a Wall Street Journal best-selling author. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you, Jamie Hopkins. Hey Jared, thanks for having me on. Yeah, that was a that's a great introduction. I you know sometimes I hate them; they start reading really long bios, but I, I love the way you put that one together. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's great to have you on the MSU WMA podcast. It was great seeing you in Philly at the Impact Conference. I heard you and Kellen went to a haunted prison, a haunted penitentiary. How was that? Yeah, yeah. So the Eastern State Penitentiary is one of my favorite places here in uh, Philadelphia. So I've probably been. Uh, two dozen times, actually. You know, I live here, so it's it's an awesome place. It's actually where Al Capone was uh, imprisoned, so you can still go see Al Capone's cell, and they have it mostly still made up as it was for him. And then during the uh, kind of October-ish Halloween season, they dress it up and uh, kind of make it more of like a fright house. But you can always do tours. Daytime tours are actually super cool there. I mean, to some degree, just the history of the place uh, is actually, you know, scarier and cooler than a Halloween like haunted festival because they had like, you know, like the the tuberculosis centers in there and the big iron lungs. Um, I think they had a, you know, and it was a, a solitary uh, confinement prison. And uh, it was supposed to like revolutionize prisons. And the idea was that they were going to put everybody in solitary confinement and it was going to cure crime. Well, surprise, we still have crime. It didn't work. Uh, but it was male, female, because you never saw other prisoners. You didn't interact with them. So they had, you know, male prisoners next to female prisoners. Uh, they also had, I think, people down all the way to the age of like eight to 11 in there. Um, now, Obviously, this was really bad, like uh, solitary confinement still exists in the United States, but most of the data shows it's really bad for your psyche. It doesn't help you in any real way. Um, there's some reasons that they still use it, but uh, generally speaking, it was kind of a disaster of a uh, attempt. <laughs> yeah, it certainly sounds like it. I, I'm not a fan of horror or anything uh, dealing with that arena, so I will leave that to you and Kellen. Jamie, I consider myself to be well-versed in the industry, but even I don't know what all your designations mean. Could you walk us through each one and their meaning? Yeah, we could go through that, a little stroll down designation lane. And uh, well, since you mentioned Kellen, we'll at least say who she is then too. So Kellen Brown, 
is a board member of FinServe Foundation, which I, I'm a founder and president of. Uh, we have a great board, uh, Dr. David Roney, Dr. Craig Lemoyne. Uh, I guess I won't go through everyone. Jack Campbell, uh, Michael Lane from BlackRock. So we've got a great group there. Dr. Preston Cherry uh, is another professor out there in the industry. Um, we've got a really great group, um, Kelsey Rui and uh, Aaron Shabin also. And I feel like I'm going to end up uh, on it Kahante, I might as well just do everybody. Uh, she owns her own firm, uh, financial advisor, CFP, was a teacher too, a wonderful person. So we've got a great group out there. Brian Money and Julie Raggetts have been a big part of it over the years. Uh, we've had a couple new people join, but yeah, 501c3 work with, a you know, that's how we kind of ran into you. And uh, so it's been, been great. Uh, to get to know you. And, you know, it goes back to a little bit of my passion was education. I have a lot of degrees. I, I and, uh, you know, a lot of designations in this industry, too. I spent about seven years at an institution, uh, you know, nonprofit academic institution college uh, called American College. And American College uh, has been around about 100 years and really was created out of University of Pennsylvania uh, so UPenn, um, to professionalize this industry, which at the time was mostly life insurance, right? You go back to early 19, you know, early 1900s, there wasn't financial planning. It didn't really exist as a concept, to be honest. Uh, like the stock market was barely in existence, right? You had some stockbrokers that picked stocks and you had insurance agents. And insurance agents at that time represented the, what we would think of as financial advisors in your community today. And so the, really the first designation that came out of that uh, you know, education process was something called the CLU. Uh, which is, you know, really the, I, I'd say that's kind of like the OG of uh, financial uh, planning designations, and that's chartered life underwriter, which like the words don't mean anything to people anymore, because we don't use that terminology very much. But that is really understanding how life insurance, annuities, health, other types of insurance products fit into your financial plan. And, and that's really been the, the you know, kind of uh, you know, main guider in that side of the business and still really is today. If you go into the insurance world, CLU is the CFP equivalent is a good way to think about that. Um, they're actually fairly similar content, interestingly enough, and were all the way through like the mid nineties when CFP started becoming popular. Uh, so that's one designation I have. And that's kind of the history of a little bit of this profession as a actually a professor at University of Pennsylvania in the Warden School uh, named Dr. Solomon Hebner that kind of had this dream to professionalize it, which was education, some standards and uh, ethics were really important. And so those were kind of the core tenets that American College built off of. There's a bunch of de designations there in education programs, uh, RICP, Retirement Income Certified Professional, which maybe that one's behind me. I, I forget what's in the room and what's not in the room. So Charter Life Underwriter is over here. So that you, this actually almost can see it in the camera. Uh, my CFP one's over here. Where is, I guess, maybe I don't have RICP up anywhere. I'm looking around. I don't see it. So Too many to uh, keep count. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I think I have 13, uh, you know, education and designation pro, you know, uh, stuff behind my name. And uh, so I hit a couple of those. We're not, we won't, we are not going to go through all of them, but those are two that I really care about just from a historical context. So RICP is, uh, you can think of it as like a CFP plus designation. 
And if you finish up your CFP, you can go into that really to understand the retirement income distribution strategy world. And uh, it's a really practical program. I was part of the uh, core team that uh, created it and rolled it out and built it. So I was one of the co-creators of that program. And, and it was a blast. I mean, it was a true highlight, always will be of my career. We, By the time I finished up there, about six years into that program, we had about 18,000 financial advisors in that six years that had signed up and gone into the program, which really made it the fastest or, you know, most popular either way you want to count it, uh, you know, education program for advisors in the country, you know, that actually outpaced CFP or CLU or any of those at that time. So it was really wonderful just to be part of that and, and pull this knowledge base together. There are more programs doing that today than there were back in uh, 2012, but that was, that was a blast to go through. From a more you know, grad school education standpoint. I have my my JD, my law degree. I've got my MBA. I've got a master's in financial planning and an LLM, which is a master's in tax uh, from a law school too. And then I did start a PhD program and dropped out. So I'm a PhD dropout along the way there too. <laughs> so that's, yeah, it's a lot of mix of me and a little bit of uh, industry history too, which is fun. It certainly is. You are part of history. You have helped create so many different designations and open the industry up to so many different avenues, which is in part why I think it's growing so much is because of individuals like yourself who are ushering in certain opportunities like this. You mentioned your master's of tax through your Temple Law School, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So Temple uh, Law School I was living in Philly, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of the of tax. What I'll say, tax alpha, or just the tax benefits of financial planning. So, if we think about where we add most value in this world uh, from a professional standpoint, I think it comes in two areas. One is kind of the behavioral finance aspect of things. You know, is behavior modification or change management could be another way to look at it, which has just been on my mind lately. Like, should we treat kind of uh, financial planning more like a change management project, which is an interest way, interesting way to approach it. I, I know a couple other people that think about it that way. Uh, and then tax. And taxes, though, you can take more to client situations and talk to them about it. The interesting thing about like behavior modification is uh, it, it doesn't work that well if you start addressing it <laughs> like head on. Um, once people become like somewhat aware of biases and tricks, they become less effective. So that's like an interesting one that like, yeah, you learn about it, but it doesn't necessarily make like client conversations directly <laughs> like more valuable in their eyes. You might be adding the value, but they might not perceive it as much. So I thought that the tax side was super important. You know, tax laws are going to continue to evolve and change. So getting a really solid base of the macro tax world, I think, is really important. And I mean, macro meaning understanding corporations, partnerships, uh, that whole side of tax, it, which is uh, what a lot of attorneys end up, you know, actually spending their time and working on has been really helpful to, for me. Even just from the business standpoint, you know, I was uh, with Carson the last couple of years, and I think we bought eight or nine firms in the last 12, uh, you know, kind of 12 months. And understanding tax implications of deal structures was actually very helpful, even in that role, just going through those, having the conversations with owners looking to transition their business uh, was, you know, valuable. And uh, now, especially in my new role, I head up the, the private wealth team over at Brimar Trust. 
that's all within our world. You know, we're managing a lot of trusts as corporate trustee, um, directed and non-directed trusts and dealing with more high, you know, high net worth individuals, distributions, estate tax, uh, tax world comes up all the time. To complement your designations and education, you're also the founder of many organizations, one of which is the FinSER Foundation, which we talked a little bit about. Could you explain the logic behind creating it and what it actually is? Yeah, it would be great if there was logic behind everything, Jared, but there's <laughs> You know, some, sometimes things just happen. Uh, to some degree, you know, I look at FinServe as something that, that just kind of happened. Uh, that's not totally fair. There was a strategic idea behind this, but uh, I'll tell a little bit of history again here too. This is more recent history, so um, we can relate to it maybe a little bit better than, uh, you know, some of my other stories. But uh, TD, uh, which is one of the, which was really, uh, this really fantastic organization, a custodian, really tech forward, uh, got acquired by Schwab. And, you know, there's there's always good things that come out of those synergies of merging organizations together. But one of the downsides of it was that uh, a TD ran this great event and um, they would bring all these universities out to it. They had great university partnerships and they were really forward looking and investing back into financial services as a whole and, and bringing students out. So when they got acquired and uh, it was, oh man, this is going away. And I had been a professor for seven years. So a lot of my relationships are with program directors at different universities, especially two of them, uh, you know, that were close friends of mine personally and professionally, Craig Lemoyne and Preston and Dr. Preston Cherry. They they were both like, we're, we're losing this outlet. So I kind of said, well, I can probably help a little bit here. At the time I was running Excel, which is a really large conference in the industry at Carson that rolled up to, to my side of the house. And I said, like, I could at least get students here. Um, and that was just, a, that was all it really started with was that, um, which was let's just get students out somewhere. And so uh, going, you know, we, we brought students out to one conference, Chicago, maybe we had about 25. And, you know, Ron Carson, really big fan of just the industry, the profession gives back to it, cares about the health of this world. Um, and so we were just kind of like, we waive costs, students can come for free. And that's really all we did year one. And uh, there wasn't FinSER Foundation, didn't really exist as an entity. I then started talking through, um, you know, how can we do this bigger? What are the other things that are missing um, from organizations? Now, we haven't solved all this by any means, but one of the things that we realized was that a, a lot of students that are in these financial planning programs are still trying to figure out, like, what a career looks like here. So having this early exposure to advisors and conferences seemed really valuable. The next part was that there's a little bit of a, a gap maybe from uh, being in school to, you know, after graduating and like just the, you know, you have, you know, like you talked about before, uh, Jared, with uh, your, you know, one of your best friends or you know, whatever there at school and you guys kind of play off of each other while you're in school. Well, one thing that happens when you graduate, though, is that school network dissipates a little bit and you all go away. And yes, there's alumni associations and yes, you can come back for things. But 
that the network that you have at school isn't always as strong as the network that exists that you're after. And it's actually a challenge for universities in general. Um, how do you re-engage all these people? So we said, could we help with a little bit of that too? It's kind of bridging this financial planning early piece by bringing into a community, offering webinars and some other things and education and some group coaching. And then since then we launched mentorship uh, program too. Uh, this past year. And so those were supposed to be all the pieces of FinSurf, that we're going to take people to conferences and give them that exposure. We're going to continue to help educate through that kind of group-based setting, and then add that mentorship and coaching across it. Uh, recently, we also launched some scholarship opportunities for people once after they graduate. And, you know, if their job doesn't cover, say, their Series 65, but it's required for the role, we've given out a couple scholarships on that side, too. So that's more or less what Finster Foundation then does. I, I skipped over some parts. I really didn't want it to be a nonprofit. I, I was like, you know, hey, can we just do this out of Carson? And then I realized I couldn't really go raise funds um, if I just did it out of the organization at that point. And Carson's got a great next gen initiative there um, that I'm really proud of too. And, and Ron's been a great supporter and driver of that and just visionary. And Dr. Julie Raggetts is over there running that program and they've done some really impressive things. But we did that end up, uh, I did end up saying, you know what, it does have to be separate if I'm going to raise funds, if it's going to be bigger then, you know, a dozen people or two dozen people, I've got to take it a little bit broader and go raise funds. So uh, BlackRock's been a great sponsor for the last uh, couple of years. Um, a, a company called Nitrogen, which was formerly Riskalyze, is, is come on. Um, they're going to support for the next couple of years. We'll have a press release about that, too. And a bunch of individual donors out there. So we've been able to kind of scale this up now and have added more people to kind of the volunteer list. And it's been fun. Um, but our our simple put goal is to give people access to this profession that might have otherwise not had access to it. And, and that's it. And that's what we live by. So as, if it's getting people to conferences for free, if it's getting them information that they otherwise wouldn't get, mentorship they otherwise wouldn't get, or uh, paying for some uh, licensing costs that you know might keep people out as a barrier to entry, that's what we're trying to remove. I can speak for myself, and I think I can also speak for our MSU group. We have been so grateful for these opportunities to attend the XL Carson Groups Conference, to have these mentorship abilities, and to also have all these different webinars that have been informing us not only on the industry, but what it holds and the individuals of how the world works within our industry and how we can truly succeed in the future. So to you, to Dr. Raggetts, to Michael Lane, to everybody who comprises FinServe, thank you so much. And touching upon the Carson Group, you recently accepted a position from Bryn Mawr Trust as the Director of Private Wealth Management, which is a career shift from your previous position as a managing partner of Wealth Solutions for the Carson Group. What does your day-to-day -day look like in this new role and why change? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I love Carson. Uh, probably always will. I, I stayed as a investor there too. I'm, you know, I've already mentioned Ron like nine times, so I, <laughs> I'm very appreciative of Ron uh, Carson and everything he's done and the team over there. Terry Shepard, Aaron Shaven, and I. I mean, we're we're all close friends. I think I've talked to all of them every week since I left. <laughs> uh, and Bert White's a great leader for that organization. You can just go down and down. There's amazing people there. And it's just in the right place, the right time. It's got the right end client focus. Now, part of my role there, I mean, I traveled a lot for the organization and, and put a lot into it. And that's just kind of how I am. 
And when I went through my conversations there, I, I don't have a good way to self-regulate uh, either. I go all in on things and, you know, I, I don't want to be sitting in Philadelphia while we have board meetings in Omaha and not be part of that. So I, a headhunter actually reached out and uh, Bryn Mawr Trust is down the street from me. It's in my neighborhood. It's in my community. And that's important to me, too, as my kids are starting to grow up that I give back to this community and be part of it and around for them. And so those were big driving factors. Now, I, I also got the opportunity, I think where Bryn Mawr Trust sits in the world, it's uh, it's a very interesting dynamic. They got bought by a larger bank, Wisfis, uh, which I'm part of, obviously. And you know they want to make Bryn Mawr Trust the preeminent wealth firm here uh, outside of Philadelphia and Delaware. And so I'm excited to lead that initiative up for our private wealth team. And it's a different challenge for me. I'm excited about it. I think the team's awesome. It's you know almost 200 year old company, so it's got a lot of longevity in it. And you know, I'm, I'm leading up the RIA here too. And so I, I kind of know that space well, but learning more about the trust world space and my team here is great is going to be fun. You know, I, it's not that I don't know some of it. I'm an attorney and I've got that background. I've drafted trusts, but being part of a, a larger trust group has been really interesting. And so pulling all those pieces together, it's going to, it gives me a little bit of that ability to design the vision of where this organization is going next, which to be honest, Carson already has the vision. It's go execute on it at this point. And here I get to kind of redesign a vision, a shared message and build that up and then go take it to the next piece. And to be to be totally honest, I think I'm a builder by nature. You kind of alluded to that throughout this. Uh, so, you know, where Carson was, it's in an awesome spot. And the building parts of it, man, we built a lot of it. Now, they're going to keep building, but uh, I got to be there during a really fun period of time. And I think where my skill set and passion lies is where I get to be with Brimar Trust heading up now is... We get to build something really cool here and pull all these separate firms and entities and identities and client service models together and really be the best that we can possibly be out here. So it's an amazing team, amazing history, amazing opportunity. And, and that's really why I said yes, it, but it wasn't an easy one for me. And, uh, you know, but I've, I've only been here a month and a half. It's been a really fun uh, first month and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Not only have you achieved many academic and career successes, but you also had a eight-year running streak of 3,004 days. That must be there, be up there as well for your top achievements. How did this start and why did it go so long? Yeah. So this is like a total change in, in tone and everything, right? It's, uh, it's one of those fun things, which is you know, I, you're like, hey, you do all this industry stuff and build things and uh, go back to this part. So I was an athlete growing up and, uh, you know, swam in college on a scholarship at Davidson and, you know, love athletics. And I love it from a couple different avenues is one. I think the team aspect of sports is incredibly important. And I love athletes because of that, you know, and just, you know, working with athletes and the mindset that it creates because it's about pushing yourself, but it's also like, how does this impact a team and those around you and what role do you play on the team, even from a leadership standpoint? And I, I finished up, uh, you know, college, went to law school and was trying to like refine some of the, what am I going to do athletically? I, I played a little bit of water polo. Um, I played on some basketball teams too, for a while. 
while, but I got into running um, really through a, a relationship at that time. I was dating a person whose dad was really that had been doing this streak running for a long time. And so I got interested in that, tried it out. And uh, like most people, you know, you say, hey, it's my New Year's resolution. I'm going to go out January 1, start running every day for a year. And live in Philadelphia. It's not always warm here. Weather's not always gray, especially in January. I think I made it 24 days or something like that, mid-20s. And, uh, you know, got sick, got an ear infection, all kinds of stuff, and, and quit, right? I wasn't prepared for what it took to do it yet. I didn't have the experience I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the community. I just like had an idea. And the reality is ideas in and of themselves aren't enough, right? Ideas and a desire to do it aren't enough. I did need other things. So, um, you know, I needed that relevant experience. And so then I, I kept running that year and I got to the next year and then I was a little bit better prepared. I knew how to dress. I knew how to think about eating and, and, you know, taking care of myself and running every day. And so then I, you know, just kind of started up again and uh, went for eight and a half years. And, you know, it's not that easy, but it's basically, you know, uh, overcame a lot of stuff during that eight and a half years. And this is the you know, a little bit of the crazy part, right? Where you're like, if you want to do something like that, you're going to have to make sacrifices to things. And so I broke my leg playing soccer during that time period and would wrap up my leg with an ACE bandage and go around a mile in a broken uh, tibula. And right, it hurt. And is it, would I recommend that for like family and friends? No, um, it's not the best thing to do in the world. I don't think that's a great, uh, you know, long-term vision, but it was, look, I, I believe that I was tough enough to do it and I could do it. And it was kind of proving something to myself about how much I'll put into the world. And that's why it was important to me. I don't think it's a great idea, but it was about proving something. And I broke three ribs falling downstairs after a uh, estate planning conversation in Tulsa uh, on a run. And, uh, you know, I, I ran every day with three broken ribs and that was painful. And then I had hernia surgery. I went for a hike and, uh, like a 12 hour hike and got a hernia and, uh, had surgery. And my wife even came with me and talked to the doctor and was like, Hey, he's been doing this crazy streak. I know he's going to try to run. Um, can you just tell him that he won't be able to run the next day after the surgery? And, uh, doctor goes, well, technically he could run he physically he'll be you know he'll be more secure than he is today that mesh won't tear and my wife was so mad because i told her i was like as long as the doctor says i can't run the next day it's over and he said that and he goes i'll bet i'll bet him twenty dollars he'll be in too much pain he won't be able to run most people don't even move the next day and well i i got up and uh tried to run and it wasn't too much pain. I made it maybe a block and a half, went back home and it was early in the morning, the day after surgery. And uh, then later that night, I, I took whatever painkillers they gave me and uh, grinded out one mile there at like a 9.15 pace uh, the day after hernia surgery. And um, so that, you know, that was the hardest one. The next day was a little bit easier, still painful, but uh, yeah, I ran every day uh, after that too. And then eventually just decided I had enough. My life had changed and I uh, had two kids at that point. I was married when I started. I wasn't married, didn't have a, you know, a plant, a dog, a house, any of those things, had an apartment in Philly with a roommate. And it's, you know, it's a lot easier to push your body through those things when that's your goal. 
And then my life changed, right? And like my goals changed and what I cared about changed. And now I cared about being healthy for my kids in 30 years and my grandkids and my spouse. I didn't care about, you know, uh, whether or not I ran another day, like that and 250 get you on the bus, right? Like, <laughs> like it, it wasn't important anymore. So I just decided one day that that was enough and, and stopped. And uh, I actually stopped the day of my sister's wedding, had nothing to do with that. It just you know, I, I did want to get past the 3000 day mark. Um, but then after that, I didn't really care. And I didn't know if I was going to go another two months or another week, but I just, you know, I, I had a day, I woke up and I was like, ah, that's it. Today's the day. <laughs> that is one of the most impressive things. David Goggins-esque, esque, if you will, it, just the sheer will it takes to do something like that. And the determination is marveling i will say but what's also marveling is that you were the training partner with michael phelps who was the keynote speaker at the past oh, impact yeah, schwab yeah. conference wow. could you talk about that a little bit yeah michael's a fantastic guy uh super proud of him and uh love to see him out there speaking now and he's gotten i mean he's I actually think he does a fantastic job uh, speaking now. So if you haven't gotten to see him and you get an opportunity, definitely take it up. But uh, he's a great person. And, um, you know, I grew up with him in Baltimore. Uh, we're not super close anymore. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'll set, I set a message over that I was around if he, if he wanted to connect and uh, my wife always jokes, she's like, I wouldn't hold your breath, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but he did a great job there. Uh, but yeah, we grew up on the same team training every day together for, you know, a decade in Baltimore and NBAC, uh, you know, Bob Bowman, our, our coach at the time, Michael's coach, uh, the uh, ASU coach has done a great job for the sport, for Michael, for so many other athletes out there. And uh, yeah, I mean, he had that mentality though too. See, I didn't, I didn't have that back then. Um, to be, to be totally transparent, like I didn't have that. I do everything and push myself to, to win, um, in swimming growing up. I didn't train that way. I didn't dedicate my time that way. I didn't dedicate my body that way. I just, you know, I had a bunch of other interests. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like I don't regret it by any means. Uh, you know, I enjoyed swimming. I loved it. I love swimming in college. Uh, I was a little bit more dedicated than, you know, and it's hard, you know, you're in high school. I think that's one of the challenges. Like I also played in a band and I had a girlfriend and my time got split among those things. I tried to be good at school too. And so I, I had a lot of split interests, I would say. And Michael dedicated, you know, his time, his mind, his body, his eating, um, you know, his friendships, uh, you know, he made a lot of sacrifices that other people like myself weren't willing to make at that time to be great at something. And it is all those little small things that you have to willingly sacrifice to be great at something, you know, not just good, but like truly great. You know, I don't think he missed a day of practice for four years or something too. Like he trained every day for four years. Um, that's a lot of, that's a lot of sacrifices. So super, super impressed with everything he's been able to do the process he did. And look, he changed the world and the sport. Um, you know, it's swimming's a different sport now because of him just worldwide. And, uh, you know, Bob was a big part of that too, putting a process and a training regimen in place, um, for him and others now that's just been, it's changed the way people train and look at, uh, not just swimming, but all across, 
all across the world. I, I still give credit, uh, a lot of credit to Michael to changing the way people stretch. Uh, I do that in talks all the time. I, I don't know that the data maybe totally supports it, but I always tell people that like, he's one of the first people you can visually remember uh, moving away from so much static stretching to like movement-based stretching, right? You can imagine a member slapping his arms, swinging them around. And uh, nowadays, like that's very normal. Dak Prescott does his little shimmy and everything. And you've got all these athletes you can actually envision. But Michael was like one of the first ones that you really remember stretching that way. Not that other people weren't, but um, he definitely kind of popularized the, I feel like the imagery of it uh, for sure. And it's changed, you know, every sport now, for the most part, you, you kind of warm up and move like that. But he definitely was on the forefront of it. Certainly. Going back to conferences now, at the Future Proof Conference earlier this year in California, you stated that your why is to make retirement more secure for more Americans like your mom. I see you achieving this daily at conferences you speak at, the literature you write, and the content you post. When do you think you'll say, I've achieved my goal, I've achieved my why? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess my why should never be achievable. There should always be a little bit more to do. I think that's how I view it. Now, there are um, like the same question I used to ask about, like, did you find your freedom? I, I think you should, you know, even at your best, maybe you should be a nine out of 10. There should always be something you're still striving for. I don't think that I will ever fully achieve that. I do think I have made already uh, retirement more secure for Americans. Um, RICP's got 26,000 advisors now that are better educated on retirement income planning, all working with hundreds of clients, it's had a massive impact. I mean, millions of people's retirement will be different due to that education going out. Uh, Carson's done a great job, and I'll bring a lot of that here. And I mean, generally educating people too with writing and you know books and things has also reached millions of people. But I, I won't get all the way there. I mean, there will never be enough um, change to occur. And there's always new challenges. I mean, that's one of the amazing things about this world and profession is tax laws are going to change. There are going to be, you know, macro issues across, across the world. Like we see two conflicts and wars uh, uh, ongoing right now. And like those impact people's lives, they impact people's retirement and their security and their mental well-being. And we'll never finish that. Uh, what I would like to see though, is maybe at some point in my life where I kind of look around and can see people who have now lived in retirement and feel more secure about that than they did um, you know, before. And so I don't know that we can prove out that retirement security feeling yet, but I would love to see some of the work that I do out there have that impact. And, you know, it's it's going to be hard. You know, we have to still democratize advice and take it out to a broader group of people. And there, no one organization can achieve that by themselves. No one advisor, no one thought leader. We have to have a profession that does that. And that's why things like FinServe are important. If we don't have a strong profession, we won't do that. If we don't have great places like Carson and Brimmar Trust out there giving better advice than was ever given before, we won't do that. And we need 100-year-old organizations that can build off of that time and time again to create a level of trust and security. And so I'm, I'm excited about that, but there's a lot of work to be done in this profession. 
Very few, if any, have achieved what you have achieved in the retirement space. You have certainly made your impact on the community. And I hope that you you feel this day in, day out. There is stuff to be done, yes, but you have certainly made your mark. So I applaud you in that. Going back to your publications, your books, you're the author of many books that include the titles Rewiring the Way You Think About Retirement, Reti Retirement Success in 10 Steps, and your most recent Finding Your Freedom by you and Ron Carson. I've spoken with a few authors and they say it's like choosing a favorite child. They can't do it. But I'll ask you today, which is your favorite book? Yeah. Well, it's none of my textbooks. I can answer that. So I've written <laughs> I think, uh, four textbooks or so or contributed to at least four. Uh, it's none of those. Now, textbooks are, are fun in their own way, but they're not my favorite. And uh, my first book, I think that 10 Steps one was... Uh, uh, I wrote for Forbes. Um, that was special. I just, you know, it was kind of the first time being published outside of anything else. Uh, Rewirement uh, is probably my favorite, to be honest. It is, uh, you know, I, I've done two versions of that. I'm contemplating doing a third edition and then kind of being done with it. I told everybody when I did the second edition, I might be done, but I have a another version that's kind of starting to circulate in my mind and maybe i do that and then hang up rewirement uh find your freedom was special too just because i got to do that with ron and put some of my personal story into it but it had a very um and i've talked about this it had a very clear business purpose though um so to some degree like that was work um, it didn't have the same passion aspect of it because it was we're putting the carson planning promise into and codifying it for clients which is really nice and it's good to do but like it had a very clear like here's a business reason that we wrote that book rewirement was more hey look i've got this knowledge about retirement and a different way to look at it than other people are at the time and let's put that down i think i've got one more version of it in me uh, i mentioned it maybe before is actually starting to treat retirement almost as a change management uh project and should we apply a lot of those same concepts to, right? I, I know that we have this rewiring, like changing the way we think. And I gave a process for setting up a retirement plan in there and then behavioral pieces, but I didn't put a process in place for like, how do we actually like move through this change? And so what I've been thinking was applying a change management process to that retiring phase. And I think that's a really interesting concept that I haven't explored in writing yet so i've been kicking that one around and then um what will become my favorite book though without any doubt in my mind is i have started working on i'm about uh, uh maybe halfway to a third done somewhere in that phase and i'm putting my running story down uh and yeah that that's got to be my favorite one and uh it's just it's getting the right you know, it's getting the right stories into it. That is the the challenge, but that's going to be my favorite one. Yeah, I just, it, I already know that it's been my passion one for a while, uh, but people have talked me out of writing it uh, twice. And so now there's nobody talking me in or out of it anymore. I'm just doing it. And, and part of it was, well, you should do the retirement one. That's it. That's your brand now. And so I did that one, which was great probably for work. And then at, at Carson, we kicked around which one to do. And I, I had put out the running one there too. And Judd Mackerel, who was our CMO at the time, uh, talked me into the what eventually became Find Your Freedom. There was a different version of it first and that got scrapped, but um, it was still like, 
more of a, a financial planning book. And then, you know, Ron kind of got that movement for find your freedom. So we, we tied all that together and wrote that one. But at this point, yeah, I'm writing the 3004 days uh, of running and kind of the lessons that came from it. Uh, originally I was going to tie it back to personal finance, but I've kind of found that most of the lessons, yeah, they all impact finance, but they're, they are a little bit broader, right? Like grit and talking about like, what is it, you know, what does that mean in life? Uh, you know, like running with a broken leg, like you don't have to do that. Like I could have cho chosen not to do it, but grit, grit is kind of that, you know, uh, you know, waking up and moving forward with purpose and I had a purpose. And so it gave me something to push through an amount of pain that you normally just don't want to deal with and, you know, how that then colors in other aspects of my life and lessons I learned from it. I'm certainly looking forward to reading that book. I'd love to buy a copy as soon as it's available. On the topic of books, when we first met, you recommended Simon Sinek's Start With Why. Yeah. What books would you recommend to our listeners that are not that book? Okay. Um, the Psychology of Money has got to be like the number one financial planning book at this point, <laughs> right? Uh, it's up there, uh, behavioral investor too. Uh, so I think those are probably my two favorite ones. Um, I'll look behind me. So psychology of money is right here behind me too. Um, let just think what else I have over here. Well, uh, if you're going into the RIA world, I'd actually suggest this one too. Um, so this is one of Ron's books. Um, it, there's, there's two versions, but this is the one that's out there now proven in the trenches. Um, this is really like, the blueprint for, you know, running an advisory firm. I'll just be honest. It's great. Uh, it was a New York Times, I think it was, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times bestseller. Ron's been a New York Times bestseller multiple times. That's a great book. Um, if you're outside of uh, this space, though, I've probably the book I've recommended to more people than any other book, though, is Man's Search for Meaning. I think it's a, a amazing book. It has a lot of religious tones to it, though. So just FYI for people. I don't I'm not pushing it to say convert to a religion, but I think the um, it's a it's a, a Holocaust survivor story and kind of searching for meaning. You know, it does weave into religious parts, both in the Jewish and, and Christian faith. But um, I think the journey there and introspection on meaning is super important. And then uh, I'll probably mess up the actual pronunciation of this person's name, but I think it's Gahil Gabran, uh, who does a book called The Prophet. It's been around for a long time. I think is a beautiful book. Um, it's less of a story than a, a kind of a little parables and sayings and stuff like that that kind of weave through. And sometimes I just pick it up and read a couple pages of it. And there's just, you know, the, you'll get a saying out of it that just resonates with you that day. And uh, so I, I have those around here that I think are great books. Uh, yeah, I'll just stop there. I think all of those are fantastic. I'm trying to, I'm definitely missing something I read recently that I really love, but those are all great ones. I'm trying to see what's underneath of here too. I've got books that prop this up. Oh, I actually really like this book too. Um, it's the price you pay for college by Ron Lieber. Um, you know, he's a, I think he's a wall street journal author, um, uh, like a writes for the journal or, or New York or New York times. One of those two, um, he's a great writer. It's a really good book um and it just kind of talks about like the cost of college and how much college has gone up and all the different conversations uh it, it's an impressive one 
That's something I'm experiencing firsthand <laughs> here at Michigan State University. And a classic question that I always ask is, if you could relive college again, what would you change? Uh, very little. I went to Davidson College. I loved almost every second of it. Uh, you know, there are things that I wish didn't happen. I got pretty badly hurt going into my junior year. Um, if I could have erased that, I would. <laughs> uh, so uh, the short answer is I, I had a, a construction spike all the way through my foot. Um, and, uh, you know, look, like, I, I don't I don't know that I got that many lessons out of that, to be honest. Like, sometimes you're like, hey, well, what's the lesson? I'm like, yeah, like, don't get hurt. Like, that's it. Like, that was the only lesson. Like, there wasn't any other thing that came from that one, except like, I was miserable and on crutches, had to have like three surgeries on my foot and like got infected. And like, I just, I you know, I kind of missed a, a semester of life to some degree. Not entirely, like I still did stuff, but I loved college. Uh, I didn't go abroad, which I would have loved to have done. I tell everybody to go abroad, but I was there to swim. I was part of the team and I don't regret that decision. Like I stayed and I swam and instead of going abroad, I, I felt like that was something that I signed up for then as like a student athlete was that commitment to the team. So I'm glad I stayed with that, but I would have loved to have gone abroad. Um, even if I had done that in the summer, um, it probably would have been something I would have changed. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else, but no, I love being part of a team. I, I loved my, you know, I love my career at Davidson. Uh, I love my friends that I'm still friends with, but yeah, I loved college to be honest. Like I, people, some people don't, um, but I, I loved almost every second of it. I loved law school too. Uh, you know, I think that one thing, if I give a piece of advice though, in college, which is that more probably for that first year, um, is to really take the academic part of it serious and that you're there to learn. I think most people figure that out by the end of college. Um, not everybody figures it out year one. I didn't really have that problem, but I, I what I'll tell you is I, I know a lot of people that I, I, I think put themselves just in a hole to dig out of because they didn't take it serious year one. They showed up and they got pulled into partying and drinking and their friends and everything besides there to learn, which is why you are there, right? You're there to learn. And it's not just book learning. It's there to learn from your know, professors. It's there to learn from you know students. It's there to learn from your network, but you are there to develop yourself. So like take that seriously and don't put yourself in a hole right off the bat. And you, know, you end up with five C's, you fail a class, and you have to redo something and you're just behind now. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, it, it, it feels like it should go without saying, but you see it a lot. And if you go to grad school, like don't do the same thing there either. A lot of times grad school is kind of an extension of college in the sense, like if you just want to party every day, you can. And uh, I, I saw people fall into that in law school and business school where they just fell behind a little bit at the beginning. And, uh, you know, I think that that can be that can be a downside. And then you do a great job at this, uh, Jared. So I'll just point that out is like use college to network and build stuff up. I mean, I said development. Like you're doing a podcast, you go to conferences, you're part of student organizations, part of FinServe. You have a lot more opportunities to develop than just going to class. So my other statement isn't just be good at school, but like develop yourself and use, you know, networking and, you know, MSU is a, a great 
organization with one of the stronger alumni bases out there in the country. Uh, but other schools have great alumni associations too. So like network with them, um, use all of that at your advantage while you're there. It's harder to do some of those things once you graduate, um, you know, to like hop into a podcast, your company might not really support it. You might not have time, but you have the time to test out a lot of those things in college. Like I ran a radio show in college, right? I was in a band. Like I got to play music and, you know, go on the radio and interview people. And that helped me long-term too. Jamie, I truly appreciate your kind words. And I completely agree. There are so many different opportunities that college students that can utilize to their benefit, whether it's conferences, networking, mentorship, the list goes on and on and on. But I truly appreciate you taking the time today to speak with me to the MSU WMA podcast, to our listeners. Please give my best to Baxter and your family. Thank you for coming on the MSU WMA podcast. If you enjoyed the discussion, please like and share the podcast on Apple and Spotify. The Spartan Journal Podcast is part of Michigan State University's Wealth Management Association, a student organization whose goal is to inspire the next generation of financial advisors. The Spartan Journal News Team releases a newsletter every Monday morning comprised of financial literacy and the week's market updates. Feel free to follow us on social media at MSUWMA and check out our website at MSUWMA.com. Anything heard on either the MSU WMA or Spartan Journal podcasts is for educational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice.